Welcome back, listeners. You guys are listening to the Spice Cast. I'm your host today, Daniel Bullard, and here in the studio with us, we have two veteran songwriters from the Huntsville music scene, Lynn Bullard and Rick Van Nostrand, and their new band, Doghouse. So, guys, how are you doing today? Great. We're good. <laughs> first, first, we must give the disqualification. Daniel is my son. Yes. And yes. Uh, the second one is that Lynn's really the songwriter. Okay. So, so what is your role in the band? Uh, general instrumentation and a little voice. And you I'm guys, a guitar uh, player. Sorry. <laughs> it works basically. I'm a pretty good songwriter. He's a great guitar player. Between the two of us, it makes a, it makes a unit. Okay. You know, if you if you're gonna go out as a songwriter, find yourself a really excellent player. Everybody does. And you guys have been playing music together for quite a while, right? You guys started back, I guess, in the early '80s with a band called Jump Street. Yes. You care to talk about that? Yeah. So um, we uh, we'd known each other uh, probably from our high school. We were at different schools, but. Huntsville's not a big town, so so we both knew each other as local musicians, and eventually we ran into each other at a bank and said, hey, what are you doing? And neither of us was really working musically. Uh, Len was doing some solo stuff, and I was between gigs, and we started getting together playing, and it seemed to work well, so we started uh, looking for jobs and ended up uh, working quite regularly for a number of years. Yeah, we had a... We had a WLRH local musicians day, and he was there with Elaine, which is his partner then. And I came in to play solo, and we were looking at each other, going, "No, oh, you know, that's good." So when we ran at each other into the bank, we were somewhat, you know, this this might this might have some a good sound, and that's you know, as a musician, what you're looking for, what's what's going to work together well, what has a good sound, what complements each other, yeah, and what's going to be fun. Yeah, that's the key. It's got to be fun. Right. I, I had seen that Rick was a really, really good jazz player, and, you know, I totally sucked at that. So I was, you know, looking for somebody to make me make a better musician out of me. And the, the one thing about working with Rick is he's never done anything but make a better musician out of me. Well, it goes both ways, though. I mean, we complement each other really well with our playing styles. Mm-hmm. So were you guys mostly playing things out of the real book? Were you doing any original music at that time? Was it a mixture of both? Well, it was that and more. Len's a prolific songwriter, so we've always done a lot of his material. But we've done a broad range of musical styles around those two, which mm-hmm. might be the core. You know, some blues and some maybe contemporary pop and some country music little bit of rock and roll you know just just i my goal's always been to try and play as diverse a range of material as possible because that's what keeps it interesting for me yeah and my goal was to get a job and play in the club so that you know people would stay so so what we were doing was you know a mixture of what was on the radio um what was classic you know what can be comfortably played with two guitars which you know you know do stick to what you can do um but it was, uh, we started out with a good simple set of songs that we knew would work, and we got those good and tight. And then we took the pieces out of the real book, which we knew, you know, I would have some time, have, have to learn and get, get comfortable with playing that style. It took some time. So those become sort of like the long range, we work on these every time we practice. 
and we'd put like four of those in there and those would be next to all the easy things we would do and that would give us something that was the audience could take to immediately and uh and then we would have the really showpiece stuff that showed yeah we got chops and it, that worked really well we went into a place that used to be down in the old mall um, little club down there that was basically a place where truck drivers and people hung out and we did week weeks of playing in that club and people really liked it a lot and we were just Lynn and Rick at that point in time um, we didn't change to Jump Street I think till probably about a year later but we found a good stable you know night place where we could be the house group and we stayed there long enough to, to get good at what we were doing and then for the next you know three or four years we worked like mad. It was great. Yeah, we added a bass player to yeah. round things out. Never went as far as adding a drummer because, well, between the two guitars with the rhythmic styles that we had, a drummer was never really necessary. Yeah, it would have been nice, but it was also more ways to shred the natch. The rooms were small. Um, also remember at this time, the, the larger nightclubs afforded very large bands you could go into you know some of the rooms down south park and stuff which typically be in motels hotels and you could see a 14 piece band playing in those days no these are your your disco and your big bands yes and, things like and that. you know very very good players the musicianship on the street at that point in time was excellent and you know we were competing against guys like your partner's father rick Job, who was just a monster you know good player so that was a lot of what the scene was like then. You were, you, you were. There were no I play twos. You were up against people who were really very good at what they did. So what kind of got you guys back together, after after you know years of hiatus, work life, children, all of the, all the adult things that happen to a person. Yeah, you know we, we both, um, had regular jobs that uh, took us in different directions. I was in sales for a long time, international sales, so I traveled a lot and didn't really have time for any uh, consistency uh, in playing. You know, I'd get together with people once in a while, but wasn't really looking at, at doing it steadily with anyone. And I also moved out of town for a number of years, moved back uh, late last year, and uh, then we got back together. I was on Facebook and... Uh Randy, his brother, his Facebook friend says, well, Rick's back in town. So I was playing down a couple of, cup of everything last year, about August sometime. And I told Randy, well, I'll be there, you know, Friday, Saturday night. Uh, tell Rick to come on down. So he came on down, sat in. We, He knew exactly what I was going to have him do. <laughs> yeah. Making whoopee. Um, and we could still, you know, it just still worked. So I said, you know, um, I had planned to stay solo for a while. I just was not. But I had in the back of my mind that I wanted a trio with a stand-up bass. Uh, and it was less about jazz, more... Uh, I was looking at Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, because it's a comfortable thing to do. And nobody else is doing it. Uh, and then Rick comes back and he says, well, you know, can I come over and play? And I said, yeah, let's do this. And as soon as he walked in, sat down, we played for a few minutes. We were like, all right, we're back. <laughs> you know, it's just a natural thing. And how did you guys hook up with your bass player, Curtis? Uh, I met him at church. He's a uh, he's part of the praise band, the praise group there that I was playing in at uh, Hazel Green United Methodist, and 
uh, just a really good egg, and he had a stand-up base, and he was willing to willing to be there. Which is which is a rare trait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These days. Yeah, it's hard to find a guy that'll play a doghouse, and that I mean that's the origin, the name of the band, because most musicians know that's what a stand-up bass is called. Call it a doghouse. And it was Del Palmer, actually, Kate Bush's old boyfriend, who pointed that out to me. <laughs> I thought, huh. okay. So Curtis Zimmerman, the bass player. Mm-hmm. He's he's really a great musician. He plays, you know, guitar and and bass and piano. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're really happy to have him. He also, although he doesn't do it much, he's a good singer as well. And we hope to mm-hmm. incorporate that more and more oh, over cool. time. So let's talk about your first song. You guys came in a couple of weeks ago to lay down some demo tracks, and uh, the first one of those we were going to show off today was uh, "Morenita de Brazil." Um, and I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation on Moranita that. Moranita do Brazil. <laughs> it's, um, it's by Giuseppe Ferralto from like 1914. And it's, he's actually an Italian, not a Brazilian. And it was an, a popular style at the time. I learned it from an old Chet Atkins album. And we just decided, you know, we wanted something that was um, a little jazzy to show, to just to jam on live. Yeah. And it's something that people probably recognize, even though they probably don't know the name of yeah, the, the guitar students will all have played it at one time. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah I, I have fond memories of walking through the halls of UAH and hearing that come out from about three or four different rooms at the same time, and, <laughs> in slightly different tunings each each yeah, time. Unlike Lagrima, which everyone has to play. Well, cool. Let's hear that. This is Morenita de Brazil.
All right, we're back. And that was Doghouse with Marnita de Brazil. So when you guys are going through songbooks or original songs that you've written in the past and you're looking for material specifically for this group, what is it that you're looking for? Something that fits the sound and instrumentation. Uh, you know that I'll sit at home and I'll write things for choral or things like that that are nice music, but, you know, as, as Rick will say, they're not doggish. Um, it has to be something that fits the instrumentation and, and uh, the general feel for what we're doing. One of the things that I, I like to look for is something that I think we can make swing. Yeah. And I, I've said that a number of times. We can do this one because we can make it swing, you know, and, and I think that's such an important thing when you're entertaining people. They need to be entertained and they need to be tapping their foot or, you know, be involved with the music in some way and swinging is a good way to do that true and I, I kind of look because you know I'm going to be doing the singing most of the time I'm looking for something that I can emotionally engage uh, don't oh, it's not elitist but more it's that I have to be able to personally feel what I'm doing it, you know just mechanically singing something shows when you do it and um it won't be any fun for me. So, you know, I'm looking for something that's fun to play. I'm looking for something that I am um, can get involved with. And I'm looking for, a lot of times I'm looking for something that I'm going to learn something from, particularly as a songwriter. The, you know, the beauty of the real book and, you know, what Rick brings in with the swing is that that influences my songwriting. Uh, you are what you eat. Um, and so when I get material that's um, if I'm going to cover something I want it to be something that advances that a little bit because it's going to show up in the next couple of songs has there has there been a set of lyrics or something that you've you've rehearsed or found recently that's really resonated with you mm, something that surprised me that resonated with us yeah um, that's life by Frank Sinatra I didn't, and you know, a couple of Sinatra tunes. I, you know, it just doesn't occur to me to think I'm going to sing like Frank Sinatra. And then when I get into it, I find I enjoy it. There was a recent um, special, I guess, on PBS about Sinatra. I was watching it, and he did that song, and I thought, man, that's something that nobody around here is doing, and we could make it swing. Yeah, yeah. And that that brings me to another point. How how has the, have the shows that you've played, how people, you know, reacted. And it's probably different for different rooms, but it's a sound that's that's in Huntsville, but not very, you know, it, it comes and goes and it hasn't been very present recently. Well, I've been really pleased with the response we've been getting. Um, you know, you go into a coffee shop and there may be nobody there when you start, but people start coming in and they don't leave and yeah. they're listening, they're watching and and you can tell that they they get it and and we're going to do say you know two songs like that and then i'm going to toss in uh, arlo guthrie's darkest hour or um johnny hartford's gentle in my mind songs that haven't been played around here for a very long time and yet older people yeah i remember that and so they'll engage with that and that's why you kind of want to have a coherent but somewhat diverse set of material because Different things are going to affect different people. Um, the good thing about Doghouse versus, say, my solo act is, solo-wise, I'm very ballad-heavy. And that's a downer. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you really need that other side to engage the audience. And there will be the people who um, 
who really love the swing stuff, and then you'll have the people who will turn around and look at you when you do the ballad, and they get all misty-eyed. Um, did they have a good time? And most importantly, did they leave a $10 you know, tip in the jar when they go yeah. out the door? Speaking of a diverse set, uh, the next song we were going to showcase is Hey Bus Driver, which is a lot more straight-ahead rock than some of the other material that you guys do. Um, yeah, that's me just being crafty. <laughs> that's all it was. I was trying to write something that had some, some oomph behind it. And um, it's a true story because that actually did happen. I mean, when we were, if you've ever been over Stringfield here near the rock quarry, there's a big hill on the side. And that used to be a little two-lane road that went straight down. And we would come home from Monrovia in the bus when we were in the first, second grade. And we tell the bus driver to let the let the brakes off because when we got to the bottom of the hill, we'd hit this big bump and we'd all fly up into the air off these seats. It was dangerous, but you know we were kids; we didn't care. And um, that's all it was about. You know, it's a true story. Well, this is Doghouse with Hey Bus Driver. Cross. 
Alright, that was Doghouse with Hey Bus Driver. And uh, we were talking about songwriting a little bit in the last section. When you guys are collaborating on a song together, um, what's what's your process? Well, really, Len, he's the ideas guy. He has the lyrics. All I do is try and add uh, a good guitar part. You know. So will, will he walk into the room with a tune and, and lyrics in hand and you guys just kind of yeah. hammer it out from there? Yeah, yeah. Usually, I'll, usually what I'll do for them is um, I'll demo it. I'll make some recording of it and I'll send it out to him. So here's what I did last night, you know, working with the looper or whatever, because I've had a studio for years and I'm used to producing myself. I'm used to, you know, doing all the parts. And the difference is now I'll, I'll make a basic demo. I'll send it out to them and say, here's what I did last night. What do you think? And of every four of those I do, we might pick up one, you know, because the other three, either once I recorded it, I don't care, which is, unfortunately bad habit or when we go to to fool with it it just doesn't get anywhere but you know really it's it's a matter of um collaborating on the production itself and um our processes for doing that vary depending on the song Mm -hmm. when we did um a cover of fly me to the moon i got the original frank sinatra midi played to that and then stripped all those parts out and just left my guitar and a voice uh, because that gave me a good solid, you know, chop sound, and then Rick comes in and adds all the magic. When we did um, the recording, first thing we did was "Urge for Going" by Joni Mitchell, and it's a song I've played for a long, long time. So I went in and did a, a demo. I did a version of it where I just sat in front of the mic and sung it with the guitar, and then I had Rick come in and add his parts, and um, that was our first experiment at it. And it's, I thought it was just beautiful. You know, sound at the end. And I said, okay, this is really working. So now we can move on to some harder things. And I think that process will evolve more over time. We will get a lot more collaborative about it. Um, even when we were in Jump Street, Rick would show me chords and things. And he would say, well, I learned these from this. Well, I didn't. So I'd take the chords off and write a song with them. <laughs> you know, I was like, are you stealing? I, I don't know. I don't think so, but... Um, so it just depends, but as, as the, the lyricist and everything, it kind of has to start there. You, you've got to have a good idea of some kind. Yeah. You have to have the foundation or there's nothing to build. Well, Chad Atkins said it. If you don't have a good song, you don't have nothing. That's just the reality of that. But, um, it's more of, it's more of a creative partnership than, you know, me just writing songs and throwing them out there. It's just, that's where it starts. Yeah, it seems like you guys both have a lot to teach each other, even even still today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, as a musician, you're always trying to learn something new. Or you should be, yeah. yeah. Some people settle down into their formulas, and they, don't, and they don't get off of them. And if you get a certain amount of fame, you can't. James Taylor talked about that, that he tried to make a different kind of album, and he couldn't do it. Garth Brooks tried to make a different kind of album. You can't do it. Once you're famous for what you do... That's the box you're in. You're locked into it. Yeah, pretty much. Well, so you guys have some gigs coming up here in the uh, next few months or so. The first one is uh, April 25th over at Angel's Island Coffee down on uh, South Parkway. Mm-hmm. You guys have been playing there quite a bit recently. Yeah, it's been kind of like a once-a-month gig. It's a, it's a sweet little room. Nice people. And, you know, uh, because we're new at this again, uh, we're trying to develop a fan base. Yep. And we and 
it's a good room to go into where people can I mean, if, if you've got their kids with them, they can go. A lot of people our age can't get out because they can't go into the bars. They've got family and stuff. This is a room where if you walk in and you got your babies with them, set them down in the back and listen to the music. There you go. Other rooms will be, you know, the brew pubs are definitely going to be adult rooms. And you'll have to change a little bit for that. And uh, speaking of which, you've got a gig June the 5th over at uh, Yellowhammer over in the Beer Garden, right? Yes. Yeah, what a nice venue. Yeah. It really is. That's Those guys are great. What yeah. they set up is great. Yeah, I went, I went to their Spring Fest thing last weekend, and I think they had built that stage for that, but they wisely decided since it's April in Alabama, they probably mm-hmm. needed to have a stage under a tent, and, and that's where they put everything. Well, they've also, uh, when you talk to Tom... And the other guys down there, and I know one of the fellows down there from from when we were younger, they are very much into the idea of supporting music, that music is a vital part of their business. I mean, they're in the business to sell beer, of course, but they see the music as a very vital part of what they do. Right. And so few rooms uh, are used to be like that. That's a that's kind of a new trend. That's, that's your generation coming out. Yeah, I'm not sure why either, because I, I have heard that analysis before. You know, the bands are there to sell beer. Well, then why aren't you treating them well if that's the way you're getting people through the door? They do seem to be treating people pretty well. Uh, some rooms don't. They do, and I don't want to really get into that too much because it's that's private people's business. But right. uh, some of these people really are treating the musicians well. We talked to Tom last night. He was just nice as he could be. Uh, I mean, it is, they are in a business. Let's, let's be real about this. You know, it's about butts and seats. Um, they have to sell product. That's, that's America. That's what we do. At the same time, if you're doing it with grace and class and style and you're providing people a good time, you're making memories, you know. A lot of rooms in this town that don't exist anymore, but we grew up in them and, you know, they were great. But it's, this is a different time. This is a different time. Music is not as important to the culture as it used to be in my time. Um, and yet, in your generation, uh, I was talking to this about Taylor with Taylor Hoke, uh, who runs the songwriting shop up in uh, Fayetteville and is a fantastic songwriter. Yeah, we've had her and her uh, music partner here on the show. Yeah, Taylor's, Taylor is a, a love and a wonder, but she said the same thing, and that is it's the craving for authentic sound has come back. There's... The kids are suspicious of a lot of what they've seen and heard. They've become to realize, you know, what's been revealed about the Wrecking Crew and, and the stuff like that, that, sorry, the Beach Boys didn't play on their albums, not that did the Monkees, and no one did, you know. That music, good music, is played by a handful of people. And if you want the best, those are the people that go work on it. Well, nobody minds that you do that. They mind that you lie about it. Right. And I think they've also started to realize, just seeing what's happened to the commercial music industry the last 15 years, that if people don't start supporting it, it's going to disappear. Yeah. This is true. There's an article you should read by Jonathan Taplin at the USC uh, Innovation Lab. And Jonathan was Bob Dylan's road manager. He was the producer of Mean Streets. He's a movie maker. Um, he's an incredible mind. And he wrote an article called Sleeping Through the Revolution, that you should look up because he makes the point quite clearly what the impact of um, streaming services, the web, Google, these things has had on culture and that it's not good. Two points of view. One says that the highest quality should be the stuff that everybody listens to. But if you do that and you curate 
access to the studios and everything like they did in the 60s and 70s. Only a handful of people ever get to play, and that's all you'll ever get to hear. It'll be good music, but it'll be limited access. Now you have studios like the one we're sitting in that can be set up by people who know what they're doing, but still for minor costs. You have access to Reverb Nation, Google, YouTube, all these things. So your ability to get out into the world, to be heard around the world, is unlimited. But your quality is low. And that's the sea change that's about the fight we're about to have now is to start looking back and say, we have to bring the quality up. You can't just, it's one thing to stand in front of the mic and do G, C, and D and sing and make your statement song. Nothing wrong with that. Just remember that's what it is. But if you turn around and you compare that kind of songwriting to, say, a Johnny Mercer, anyone from the 30s and 40s, um, there's just no getting around that the, other, the older stuff has way higher quality. And it's because people studied their craft. You had to be good, just like it was in the 80s in Huntsville. You had to be good or you didn't get there. Um, there will be a thinning out soon where you know good will be recognized and, and mediocre will still be there, but it won't do as well. Um, we go through this cycle about every 10, 15 years, you know, as a new generation of musicians comes on. But my advice to any songwriter or anyone who's out there, pretty is not going to cut it for very long. <laughs> You yeah. really, really need to study. You need to get with players. I mean, you know, look what Ken Waters did for you as a trumpet player. I mean, I thank Ken personally for that. I said, yeah, man, I appreciate what you did for my son because I saw how you played before he got hold of you. And then afterwards, you're a great player. You owe him for that. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of people do. Yeah. And that's that's really the one of the best things about living here and, and growing up here as a musician is there there's a great and not everybody's like this but there's a number of really great players that have gone out done their thing you know got as famous as they could and then they move back here to give it back to people to give mm -hmm. it back to the next generation yeah and, ken's a fantastic teacher yeah. he's, a, he's a great educator and and a marvelous musician oh yeah you know there are a lot of great musicians around always have been and uh, len was talking about the cycles and fortunately now it seems that there are a lot more venues that are opening up that are musician friendly. They're not necessarily yet all friendly from a financial point. They don't <laughs> all play right. well, but at least there are a lot of venues that are that are opening up yeah. that uh, afford uh, uh, offering. Uh, there, you're you're there for more than just being a piece of furniture. They want yeah. you there for the and, right. and every time someone like Ken who goes out and opens rooms, opens a room, three more rooms have to open in order to compete. When one room competes with good music, then another room has to compete with good music. And uh, there will be that counter pressure to say, oh, you know, we don't need that. We can do blah blah. Yeah, we can bring in a DJ or whatever. No, you you allow the cycle to run. You allow good players to come in, and they will make other good players better. And that's just the way it works. And then we shuffle away, and then, and then it's your turn. Just as remember something Kevin Spacey said, if you made it to the top, you have the, you have the obligation to send the elevator back down to the bottom. You know, always be willing to help people play. I only get aggravated when I, I'm told that someone's, you know, that's the best person in town, and I go see them, and I realize this is very mediocre. It's just very well-dressed. 
you got to get used to that. That's entertainment, but that's not music. And that was Carol Kay's point. You know, you can you can be a star, but stardom can be taken away from you at any time, and it's ephemeral. Whereas ephemeral, your your chops, your musical skills never go away, and being a good musician is respected. You know, being a fetching piece of ass is not. It's also fleeting. Yeah. So let's talk about the uh, the last song you guys cut here a couple of weeks ago. Probably my personal favorite. It's called "Why Do Babies Love the Beatles." <laughs> And there's a there's a story behind that too, right? Yeah, I was playing uh, in a coffee house over in Madison, and um, I walked in and sat down, and the owner came in with his wife, and they set their four month old baby right in front of me. Well, a four month old baby is a very uh, crabby listener; they can get very loud if they don't like something. So you're sort of forced into a playing a kind of a lullaby like thing all night until and and you have to make the kid happy. Well, I was doing all originals because they that's what they required. And I got to the end of the night and I'm looking at the baby and I told him, I said, okay, everybody tell the BMI, you know, ASCAP people to go away because I'm going to do a cover here. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm going to play a Beatles song. And he said, why? I said, because babies love the Beatles. And if you raise children, you find that out, that, you know, you can put on a Beatles album and a crying baby will quit crying. And the only question in my head was I was driving home that night was, why do babies love the Beatles? And so I wrote all the lyrics in my head on driving home and uh, demoed it as soon as, uh, kept your mother up because I went home and demoed it as soon as I got home. <laughs> and then brought the guys in and, and recorded it. And it's just one of those, um, it's just it's just hooky. It's fun. But yeah. it's fun, yeah. And yeah. It, it asks a question. And, it, you know, of course, you can't go far with that one line. And I had to get into all these other, you know, why do things happen in life? Because uh, you got to go down that philosophical path. Um, and that's all it was about. We mean, you know, asking questions. Why do certain things work the way they work? And of course, we get to that line about Willy Wonka, and you see all the guys in the audience go. <laughs> 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 the younger guys are laughing, and the older guys are nodding in agreement. Yeah. Nodding with understanding. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks for coming back and, and doing the interview with us. We really had a lot of fun having you guys here a couple of weeks ago. Well, we appreciate you having us over. This is this is like a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Doghouse taking us out with Why Do Babies Love the Beatles? Why do babies love the Beatles When they're sitting in their cribs on pens and needles Cause it takes away their pain When they hear that tender strain that's why babies love the Beatles Why do women love to dance? It gives the gent there with a second chance If he's a loser at the table But on his two feet he's able That's why women love to dance There's a certain satisfaction In a guaranteed attraction it's true what makes you happy makes you bold You don't need a special reason for the babies you are pleasing The reason's in the hands that you hold Why do lovers love to kiss? The truth about it, darling, surely this When the things that shut your mouth make you hang around the house that's why lovers love to kiss 
old men love to flirt With their willy wonka dragging in the dirt When they talk that turkey job It makes them feel they're half alive And that's why old men love to flirt Temptations never blind What you look for you will find In the secret garden of your own desire You can feel it in your heart You can make a better start You build an everlasting fire Why do babies love the Beatles When they're sitting in their cribs On pins and needles Because it takes away their pain When they hear that magic strain And that's why babies love the Beatles that's why babies love the Beatles That's why babies love the Beatles This has been a production of Spice Radio from Huntsville, Alabama. You guys know what you want and you don't have to do too much to get it. Get with us at spice-radio.com. If you have a podcast, you make music or art, or you have an event that you want to promote in the Tennessee Valley, you can find us at www.facebook.com slash Spice Radio Huntsville, or on Twitter at Spice Radio HSV. And again, our website, spice-radio.com.